Hello, you luscious lemurs, and welcome back to Puzzled Monkey. Got some really nice feedback on the last episode, which, if I'm honest, I was a little bit worried about, because it was quite markedly shorter. It was a swift 16 minutes, as opposed to the 20 to 25 minute journey we usually go on together. But yeah, maybe that's what people want, a bit more of a bite-sized insight into these bizarre things. Who knows, but I will keep it in mind. I hope that you're all ticking along just nicely and enjoying a bit of this tasty weather you're receiving at the moment. It's positively boiling in Liverpool for February, and to be honest, I've already started burning. Thank the Lord for my Anglo-Irish skin. But pigmentation aside, what the hell am I talking about today? Well, alongside coronavirus, I think it's pretty safe to say that large-scale protests and acts of civil disobedience have dominated the news in the last 12 months. We've seen the Black Lives Matter marches across the world after the murder of George Floyd, the storming of the Capitol building in the US, which I still can't quite believe happened. We've had student reform marches in Thailand, election protests in Belarus, anti-corruption marches in Lebanon, as well as the ongoing farmers' protest in India. The list goes on and on. It's safe to say people have been out in force putting rubber soles to tarmac. Now, whilst all forms of protest at their core aim to draw attention to perceived persecution, today I'm going to focus on one very radical mode of protest that takes this to a totally new zenith. It's a type of protest that you may not have seen on the news recently, and you can be forgiven for this because only seven people have engaged in it in the last year. I'm talking about self-immolation, the act of setting fire to oneself with a flammable liquid and willingly burning to death for a social or political cause. As always, we keep it very light and uplifting on Puzzled Monkey. In this episode, I will argue that perhaps no other form of protest has the capacity to stimulate public outcry as well as transformative action as self-immolation. This is because being such a radical and horrific act, it has the power to actively shine a light onto contextual inequalities and power structures that are usually kept well hidden in the dark, away from sight and mind. Alongside this, self-immolation has been shown to inspire what's called the Werther's effect. It has the power to transmit itself, as well as the political message it encodes, to new hosts in new locations. In other words, despite its brutality, self-immolation is highly contagious. But why am I talking about this? Why now? You see, acts of self-immolation have been the catalyst for massive socio-cultural shifts in the past century across the globe. They are often the straw that breaks the camel's back. In January of this year, Liu Jin, a 45-year-old Chinese driver who works or worked for a food delivery business owned by Alibaba, which is basically China's version of Amazon, set himself on fire next to his scooter in an act of protest over unpaid wages and the toxic mistreatment of workers in China's booming takeaway sector. With the global rise of what's been termed the precariat, the precarious proletariat, who increasingly have to join the unstable and exploitative gig economy, perhaps Lu Jin's actions represent the start of a new wave of self-immolation that looks to topple a relatively new enemy, 
I'm talking about the most powerful entities that have ever existed in the history of humankind. Multinational corporations. To explore why Jin's actions may be more than just a bloke expressing his anger in a pretty left-field manner, I want to take you back ten and a wee bit years, where an act of self-immolation catalyzed the greatest transformation of the Middle East since the decolonization era, the Arab Spring. Mohammed Bouazizi came from a small provincial town in Tunisia called Sidi Bouzid that was burdened with high levels of corruption and unemployment rates. Bouazizi's father had died when he was a child whilst working overseas in construction in Libya, and with his family, which included six siblings in a state of utmost poverty and poor health, Mohammed worked various jobs since he was 10, eventually leaving school in his teens to work full-time. After his family's farm went bankrupt and was reclaimed by the bank, he began to work as a street vendor in the centre of town, selling fruit and vegetables from a produce cart. His uncle describes how every single day, Mohammed would take his cart to the wholesale market at midnight to buy fruits and veg. And every single night, he would incur debts that he could only pay off if he sold all of his wares the next day. After visiting the market, he would go home to sleep a few hours and then repeat the same routine over and over again. And in this vein, he managed to support his entire family, including paying for one of his sisters to even attend university. All of this by earning approximately 140 US dollars per month. And on the evening of the 16th of December 2010, Mohammed had contracted approximately $200 worth of debt at the market to buy the produce he would sell the following day. The next morning, as usual, he set up shop but the police started harassing him. And this is something that many vendors in Sidi Bouzid experienced on a daily basis. The daily grind involved being harassed by people looking for money, looking for bribes. And this is what the police did. They started throwing their weight around, messing with him, saying that he could only sell his produce if he was able to show them a valid vendor's permit. Now, this was absolute fuckery because you don't actually need a permit to sell fruit and veg in Sidi Bouzid. However, because of the debt that Mohammed had accrued the night before, he did not have the funds necessary to bribe the police officers to get them off his back. What happens next is highly disputed, but Boazizi's family and other eyewitnesses claim that he was publicly humiliated by a female municipal officer, Fida Hamdi, and according to their account, she slapped him in the face, spat at him, and confiscated his electronic weighing scales. Understandably pissed off, Mohammed storms to the governor's office to complain about this abuse of power and to get his scales back, without which he cannot even sell a single tomato. The governor flatly refuses to see him or even listen to him, and incensed by this, Boazizi states a harrowing phrase that typifies not only his feelings, but probably Lu Jin's as well. If you don't see me... I'll burn myself. And with that desperate warning issued, Mohammed goes and buys a can of gasoline and returns to the governor's office. While standing in the middle of traffic, he shouts about the injustice of his predicament, the injustices that many people of his age, gender and class felt on an everyday basis. He then proceeds to douse himself with fuel and set himself alight with a match. All of this happened within one hour of the altercation with the crooked cops. 
and although onlookers acted rapidly and courageously, Mohammed suffered burns on over 90% of his body before the flames could be extinguished, and rushed to hospital, was as he fell into a coma, and eventually died on the 4th of January 2011. It was at this moment, arguably, that the Arab Spring truly sprung. After he was pronounced dead, protests that had already erupted in his hometown became widespread, moving into Tunis, the capital, before spreading like utter wildfire across the entire Arab world. Sick of a seemingly never-ending status quo of state corruption and the chokehold elite families and dynasties possessed, Arabs from across the Middle East and North Africa saw this moment as a golden opportunity for systemic change. And by the end of February 2012, rulers had been forced from power, kicked out, booted out in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya and Yemen. A far less reported feature from this period of revolution was that 107 Tunisians mirrored Bouazizi's revolutionary act. They self-immolated themselves in their own protest. And cases of self-immolation triggered by Bouazizi were also reported in Algeria, Mauritania, Saudi Arabia, as well as in Europe, in Sicily and the Netherlands. And the men who self-immolated were mostly young, unmarried, and hailed from poor rural areas, men who felt invisible and largely powerless against the powers that be. Now, to what extent can we say that Lu Qin's self-immolation is an incarnation of Boazizi's? Well, like him, Jim was a man who was forced to work ridiculous hours and exert a great amount of energy to make ends meet for himself and his family. You see, within the Chinese gig economy, Individual couriers are pitted against each other for precious work and are put under massive pressure by their masters to deliver quickly or face heavy fines. And these fines are no joke. They can have a catastrophic impact on the lives of drivers and their families because a scooter delivery driver in China makes only $7.50 on average per hour. And couple this with the fact that these workers have basically no access to benefits such as retirement programs, no compensation for workplace injuries, and basically zilch healthcare. You can only imagine the pressure that the threat of fines or loss of work puts on people who are living in these conditions. And people have actually started dying as a result. Shortly before Lou's protest, a 43-year-old scooter driver called Han died whilst delivering meals in Beijing. His wife, parents and two children were paid $4,600 in compensation by an Alibaba-owned food delivery service. This is a company that made $72 billion revenue in 2020 alone. Let that sink in. Let that tell you how much these people value human life. The tragic cases of Lu Xin and Han illustrate that the sense of helplessness towards external exploitation that triggered the Arab Spring is clearly alive and kicking amongst these food couriers in China. But remember that the gig economy is not facilitating exploitation solely in this country. This is a worldwide phenomenon. In the UK, ex-delivery driver Callum Kant observed that the vast majority of delivery work is done by people who are excluded from the labour market due to poor language skills or a migration status that doesn't actually allow them to work. Now, 
In the month that has followed Lou's self-immolation, which he actually survived, the Werther's effect appears to not have been triggered. No other drivers in China or elsewhere have set themselves alight just yet. However, the incendiary seed has been sown nonetheless. At the very least, Lu's act of protest has shone a light on the viscerally dark world of the gig economy, which is incidentally only growing in its power and extent. By 2023, it's expected to employ 78 million people worldwide. That's nearly double the amount of gig economy workers that existed in 2018. Though I'm obviously not calling for people to grab a gas can with the left hand and take a lit match to themselves with the right, it appears clear to me that the more people are funneled into the precariat out of a sense of powerlessness, the greater the sense of injustice and anger will grow. And as the Arab Spring of 2011 illustrated, this is the very tinderbox from which revolution so irresistibly and terribly ignites. However, even if Lu's self-immolation did trigger a wave of protest like Bouazizi's did, would it be enough to change the socio-economic system to the extent that would force Ali Barbar and co to be nice lads and reform to change their unethical ways? Because remember, when the Arab Spring revolts challenged the established order, it was not swings and roundabouts. Far from it, in fact. Now, whilst leadership did change in many Muslim-majority states, power vacuums symbiotically opened, and this kind of triggered a battle for power between religious elites on one side, vanguards of the old order on the other, and in between you had the pro-democracy supporters. And tit-for-tat violence and this very deep sense of division created a breeding ground for many of the large-scale conflicts that have sadly defined the last decade the Syrian, Iraqi, Libyan and Yemeni civil wars, just to count a few, and of course, the rise of ISIS. In a tragic turn of events, ten years later, there are many in Boazizi's home country of Tunisia that look upon his actions with disdain, not with pride. For them, they see the post-Arab Spring landscape as even more difficult to traverse than it was before 2011. Am I being a bit of a grumpy bastard here and suggesting that we shouldn't even bother trying to topple the gig economy and push back against the corporations that benefit from it the most? Will this usher in a greater wave of exploitation in its stead, perhaps? After all, if you did somehow manage to get rid of the gig economy, you'd then have some 70-odd million people out of work by 2023. And I've heard that the devil makes work for idle hands. But obviously apathy is not the solution here. But we do need to have an idea of what reformations are both desired and required. This reminds me of a documentary by Adam Curtis called Hypernormalization. He talks about the moment when Egyptians finally ousted Hosni Mubarak during the Arab Spring. After moments of jubilation, of celebration about what they'd actually achieved, there was apparently this sense of, what the hell do we do now? We've got this far, but now what? This case perfectly illustrates the importance of having a roadmap towards the reformation that people want to see. And to be fair to the organisations that are looking to reform the gig economy, they already have quite a long list of measures that they would like to see put into place. And some of these include the construction of a minimum gig wage, 
that will include the cost of car loans and bike maintenance, the creation of a new code of conduct that will protect workers, the renewal or the creation of new unions, and encouraging gig workers to get involved in the design of new governance structures where their voices will actually be heard. Now, call me a grumpy cynic yet again. Imagine that. But this last suggestion kind of sounds like the turkey choosing the trimmings and condiments for Christmas dinner. And maybe, like I said in the previous episode, we, the glorious consumers, have to take a bit of a look at ourselves yet again and ask whether there is a real necessity to buy into the gig economy. And let me be the first to say that I've ordered my fair share of mushroom palax through Deliveroo this lockdown. I'm as guilty as the next man, and then some. And listen, I think there is a bit of hope here, because in the last couple of years, I think people have started to wake up and question our purchasing choices and our purchasing power. Take clothing, for example. There's a great deal of evidence that people are increasingly becoming aware and wanting to be aware of the conditions in which their clothes are being manufactured and who's manufacturing them. And this perhaps represents a rise in what's being called ethical consumerism. And hey, maybe this is the best we can hope for when we approach changing the gig economy with greater awareness, empathy and restraint. But will these idealistic and potentially quite fluffy approaches ultimately stop blokes setting fire to themselves in the face of overwhelming injustice? Sadly, my hunch is that it will not. However, it may well make us consider on a far deeper level the true cost of consuming all those bloody mushroom palaks or whatever other delights we can so easily, so unbelievably easily get delivered to our door. And there we go. We've reached the end of another episode of the podcast. As always, thank you so much for coming on these bizarre and twisted journeys with me. It's been a really, really fun first month of the podcast, and long may that continue. As always, please follow the podcast on Spotify or whatever other app you use, and feel free to join the Puzzled Monkey Instagram or Facebook group. I've actually started putting some pretty nifty pictures of some of the topics we talk about on this podcast onto the Instagram, so check that out if you fancy it. As always, sending peace and love your way. Can't wait to speak to you soon. And yeah, ta-ra. Mm-hmm.